Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. Yes, this is truly an exciting episode. My guest is journalist Amy Westervelt. Amy is the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network and host of Drilled, a true crime style podcast about climate change. Amy and I go behind the scenes on how she constructs a Drilled episode, focusing on how the fossil fuel industry created the modern public relations industry. We also discuss the emerging popularity of climate podcasts, and we assess how the media is doing covering the issue of climate change. Those and many more subjects are covered in this amazing conversation with Amy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I did. Okay, we have started a bi-weekly newsletter here at America Adapts. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate pods and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. Please do. And the next episode of America Adapts is The Fundamentals of Climate Change and National Security. My guest is Commander Andrea Cameron, who is a military professor in the National Security Affairs Department and the director of the Climate and Human Security Studies Group at the Naval War College. That was an amazing conversation, so look for that one. Okay, adapters, let's join in with Amy Westervelt and go behind the scenes in the wonderful world of climate podcasting. Hey, adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. My guest is journalist Amy Westervelt. Amy is the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network and host of Drilled, a true crime style podcast about climate change. Hey, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. I am so excited about this conversation that we're about to have. We chatted in advance, but I'm telling you, it was really hard to structure my episode. There was going to be too many topics, but (laughs) I'm really excited (laughs) about this. Let's just get started. We're going to cover climate communication, but I want to talk about your podcast too, and you know, obviously some episodes that you do, but let's just get started with Drilled. What is it? What do you cover on there? Yeah. You know, I got into doing audio after doing print journalism for maybe 15 years on climate and almost from like the first, you know, week of my job as a, I took a job as a community reporter for a public radio station in Reno to learn audio. And immediately I was like, you know, how can I do climate stories that are, that are more narrative and that tell some of the you know, the stories behind what's happening. And it took me a a really long time to figure out how to do that. (laughs) Because, you know, as you well know, there's so much scientific and technical information that you feel compelled to share with people that sometimes things like character and plot are not top of mind. And maybe like five years into doing audio stuff, I was in a courtroom in San Francisco, covering the climate liability trial there. So the cities of San Francisco and Oakland had sued, I think it was the top 30 oil companies and they wanted them to pay some portion of the cost for climate adaptation. And the the judge in that case had a very, had a reputation for being kind of an eccentric guy. And he had like taught himself to code to adjudicate like a, Oracle case and he had taught himself all about self-driving cars to like (laughs) rule on a a Google case and all of these things. And so he asked for a climate science tutorial in San Francisco. And it was kind of, it was more of like a, a history of science, sort of wanting to get a sense of, you know, what was known and when and who knew what and that kind of thing. And so I was in this courtroom in San Francisco And there were, you know, oil company lawyers and environmental lawyers and the scientists had shown up to testify. And it just kind of hit me like, oh, this is a great framework to tell a lot of different types of climate stories because people are kind of familiar with the structure of legal cases, you know. (laughs) And so initially I just was going to do the first season, which kind of looked at the origin story of climate denial, kind of how that came about and how it was spread. And then in the course of reporting that, I just came across kind of more and more stories. So now we're, you know, we're on season five right now, and I've got at least two more seasons planned out. And I feel like I'll probably find more in reporting those. So (laughs) I don't know how long it's going to go. Okay, so I want to talk about this sort of, you know, you're using the 
podcast medium. And so you call it a true crime climate change podcast, which is very, you know, clever because people love true crime podcasts. It was that thinking early on. And I just want to say to people out there, if you don't haven't listened to Drilled, you create really a nice atmosphere. And so you've got these seasons. It's almost you must be doing that on purpose. You're almost going for these like yes. TV. Seasons. I mean, you've created a great atmosphere around a climate podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was intentional. I mean, that was that was my original kind of thought was, oh, I'm going to do a true crime podcast about climate change. And this was maybe two or three years ago when the true crime boom was really taking off. I feel like it hasn't really stopped. since. Then. Right. No. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I thought, OK, this is like a genre that people are kind of familiar with. It's a little bit unexpected to get a climate story in this format. Like we can have some fun with that and, you know, kind of take people through a stuff that can otherwise be kind of dry. I mean, that was that was kind of my thinking, too, is that the Exxon News story had been really well reported by Inside Climate News and the L.A. Times, the Columbia Journalism School, you know, a couple years before this trial. But it seemed like a lot of people still just didn't know that story and didn't know a lot of the history behind sort of how oil companies helped to create climate denial and, you know, the implications of that and, and whatnot. So it seemed to me like, you know, if people could hear someone who had worked on climate research at Exxon kind of telling that story, it might be, it might sink in more, you know? <laughs> You likely have to plan well in advance about what your seasons are going to be. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's really involved. I don't I mean, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that there's a really wide range of time and effort required for for podcasts. You know, like that. if you're doing something that's super narrative. Yeah, it kind of is like working on a TV show. I mean, I usually start reporting about a year before the season comes out. And then, you know, a few months before we're really producing episodes, I'm, I storyboard them, you know, I've like, I've got a wall of post-its and I'm moving things around and all that kind of stuff. So, and then, you know, I commission music for each one and try to figure out yeah like what the vibe is going to be you know like this current season is probably closer to the traditional true crime approach than any of our other seasons it's like kind of one episodic story from or i guess serialized story from episode one to episode ten and it's it's telling kind of a suspenseful story with a central character or two and all of that. But I don't know. So anyway, yeah, it takes me a while. And then I, you know, I write out scripts and I, I edit them and then we do, you know, table reads and rough cuts. And I have a fact checker who goes through and does a a detailed fact check. And then I have a lawyer who reviews everything. So it's quite involved. Wow. Like that whole team. Yeah. I'm a one person shop and, you know, I'm a policy guy. And so I'm having these policy kind of wonky, but you have to do that with what you're doing. You can get yourself into, I guess, some trouble with the people that you're targeting. Yeah. 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 It must be frustrating for you or maybe it isn't that, okay, you spend all this time and you put all this thought into mapping out these seasons. But climate change is very real time, too, and you can't be as reactive to that. So there must be that a little bit of friction of like, gosh, I'd really like to cover the story that just came out in the last two weeks. Yeah, there is. And and that's how. Um, that's how my feed got so cluttered with bonus episodes. <laughs> because right. I, I feel like I think I just went through and, and pulled quite a few of them out. But, you know, even actually like our our fourth season was not a planned season that just, you know, ended up being kind of a spur of the moment thing, because maybe two weeks before a lot of the big loan programs and things were being announced and and like royalty relief and whatnot for oil and gas companies. I saw a lot of uh, think tanks and organizations that are connected to the fossil fuel industry accusing Democrats of trying to use COVID to push the Green New Deal. And I was like, that's weird because 
Nancy Pelosi is the one that's pushing a lot of the COVID relief stuff for the Dems, and she's not a big fan of the Green New Deal. <laughs> and also, usually these guys' biggest tell is that they sort of start accusing uh, their opponents of doing stuff in the lead up to them doing it. And so I started looking into it. And sure enough, it was like the API had already, you know, sent a letter to President Trump and met with him a couple times. And there were all kinds of things in the works. And I thought that we needed to cover that stuff. So we ended up doing, I mean, it's like 18 episodes or something, (laughs) just covering all of the various things that the fossil fuel industry was kind of doing amidst the pandemic. And also like, the way the pandemic was impacting the industry and what impact that might have on climate policy, all of that stuff. Yes. <laughs> so that's a, happen. the, the, the <laughs> yeah. beauty of being a podcaster. You can be that flexible. So that that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I want to come right back to some of the topics of your drill, but I, I, I do want to ask you that climate podcast, there are more and more coming out and I just, your thoughts on the field at the moment. And, and yeah. is there any area that you feel is missing that we probably hear need to hear more voices in that space? Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited to see the big boom in climate podcasting this year in particular. I feel like there's just been an explosion of shows, which is great because when I was first starting Drilled, I initially tried to pitch it to some of the larger podcast companies and was basically told that nobody, you know, they're just nobody had proven that there was a large enough audience for climate shows to justify like a production budget. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased that clearly that has changed. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm thrilled to see the boom in climate podcasts. I definitely was told that there just wasn't enough of an audience to justify investing any money at all into climate podcasts. So like seeing, especially like larger companies like, you know, Gimlet. And I've heard that Vice is working on one and it's great. I think it's really great to see that, you know, there's apparently a large enough audience that it's worth it for some of these bigger companies to try to invest money in in this space. But I do think that, you know, there are, well, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that there aren't more shows trying to do narrative. (laughs) Um, So I guess that's good for me. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure why there are there still seems to be kind of a a lack of shows telling stories related to to climate and certainly a lack of kind of climate justice podcasts. There's definitely a a dearth of people of color doing climate podcasts. So I still think there's room. I also definitely want to see and I think I think there's a few people probably working on this, but I think it would be cool to see something focused on the the psychology side, too, and, and addressing climate anxiety and climate grief and all that kind of stuff. I recently had Renee Lertzman on, and I know you've referenced her in one of your recent yeah, article. And she's great, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I my thoughts on the climate podcast space is like I've been around like four years, which is like ancient for a lot of podcasts. Yeah, you're like a godfather in this space. I'm not in controlling anything, but I think to your point, though, like the bigger networks and people that actually have deeper pockets, um, I guess that's encouraging. And with the notion of being narrative, though, like what you do with your podcast, you just described that takes a lot of effort, a lot of people, you know, actually getting paid. And so I interact a lot with more independent podcasters. These are like one or two person shops, and they're really just the funding. And so they have the, been the one occupying the space. And so getting those deeper pockets, that's what it takes, I think, for the narrative, what you just described. I mean, that sort yeah. of time and effort. And I think that's partly one of the reasons why. But I hope, as you said, this year, maybe we'll, we'll see more of those. I hope so. And just to be clear, I'm also like, a, you know, I mean, I hire people off at like on, you know, contract for a few hours of doing this and a few hours of doing that. But the first season of Drilled, you know, I mean, I... I did everything and I taped in my car. Um, (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) So it's not impossible to do it, but it is, it's hard. Like I, I feel like, you know, we've built a pretty good sized audience and we have some grants coming in now and some advertising and things like that, but it's still, 
I think I, I'm like maybe pulling a part-time salary now, maybe. <laughs> you know, it's, it's rough. For those of you out there, don't go think you're striking it rich if you're starting your climate podcast. That's, that's our advice to you. This is not, well, yeah, I think people do still kind of have that idea about the podcast space that like, you know, you can start a show and build an audience and like the money will just flow. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone who very much was like surprised. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I thought that I would be able to quit my job, but my advertising revenue is only like $50 a month. <laughs> Welcome to podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> and she's doing better than probably 70, 80% of all podcasts if she's getting that 50 bucks too. So that's the nature of it. I think a lot of people too, is they go and they, they're so excited and that's great. I encourage, I've been an ambassador. I've mentored quite a few podcasts and they hit publish and they think it's going to change the world and they're going to get 25,000 downloads that first episode. And you're just, um, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, react. you gotta play in the lawn game. Unless you're like the NPR kind of type or New York Times types, you're not doing that. Yeah, well, and especially now it is more and more crowded. I think there were. I was talking to someone at Apple the other day, and they were saying that they had more shows launching in September this year than they've ever had in any month ever. Because I think a lot of people, you know, made making a podcast their COVID project. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's harder and harder to get get ears on there. I listen to podcasts about podcasting. Lipson is my host, and you know I listen to them, oh, and yeah. so they they give you the inside scoop. They're just like, well, out of that 1.5 million podcasts, there's like 300,000 that are actively publishing. So it's it's a bit of a mirage. People pod fade all the time. They last two yeah. or three, and they're just like, wait a sec, I'm not as big as you know, the Joe Rogan. What? Well, just before we get to the next section, I just want to say, I, it's some of the people that I talk to, and I don't know if you have these conversations. I am always encouraging like different groups or individuals to get into the podcast space if they're ready for it. And I talk to a lot of big conservation groups or, you know, environmental yeah. groups, and I'm shocked how few of them have podcasts. And I've discovered part of the problem is that they all have big communication shops. And mm -hmm. there's like this tension between the communication shops are there to make the CEO or the executive director look good. And then they're also there to tell the story of that organization. And right. so it turns the, a potential podcast into mush. You really need yeah. an identity. And that's part of their problem. But they have potential for great stories and they just most of them can't get their act together. Totally, totally. I've seen that for a, a while in the print space, too. Like I, I remember someone contacted me from a large nonprofit that I, I won't name because I don't want to embarrass them. And, and it's not, you know, it's it's not really embarrassing. It's just indicative of sort of kind of how aware a lot of people in the nonprofit space are of of sort of how media works and how journalism works. And I, anyway, someone contacted me on LinkedIn and they wanted me to like write a story about something they were doing and then pitch it to the New Yorker and somehow guarantee them that they would have a feature in the New Yorker. <laughs> and I was like, that's not how it works. you know. Um, but I feel like it's similar with the podcast stuff. I've talk to, you know, some organizations and, and companies too, that want to do kind of like a, their own podcast and they are expecting to get, you know, the same sort of audience that like, you know, a New York times podcast or whatever, like a, an NPR podcast, or even like an independent, not branded in any way podcast would get. And it's like, well, people, I don't know. You ha you have to like think through what's going to make people tune in and and like is it an interview with your CEO probably not. <laughs> you know? No. No. <laughs> and and as I explain it that I follow the downloads and trends and all that that you can be in the top 20% of all podcasts but the difference between top 20% and top 1% is light years or <laughs> light yeah. years. And so a lot of people don't get it. So, but you know yeah. that you don't need to view podcasting like that. If you're getting X amount, which doesn't sound like a big number, it's just like, listen, these people are coming up and consistently listening to you. You should be quite happy with that, depending on what you're doing. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think too, that, um, there is this, so something as you've probably learned, if you were Googling me, I like, I'm pretty bad at just, staying with one thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. 
But I have been wanting for a while to to figure out a way to get more of the the great content that's being produced in the podcast space onto terrestrial radio. And, you know, of course, there's like the iHeart radio people that are doing that because they own both. Right. But but there's a lot of other stations that, you know, have a need for content and have huge audiences and the way that the vast majority of Americans actually get news is radio, which I don't think people realize a lot of people. (laughs) Um, And, you know, even stuff like, I don't know, a lot of people get their, their daily news from like, you know, a morning drive time show. And those hosts are not, they're not journalists and they're not being paid to like report things. They're just kind of being handed a bunch of headlines in the morning. (laughs) Anyway, I just, I feel like there's this weird thing happening where there's this enormous audience on terrestrial radio and an enormous amount of content being produced in the podcast space. And, and the only thing that's sort of keeping them from, from integrating is sort of like the podcast advertising model. You know, which seems silly. This is an unusual way, but I've discovered, and and I a fraction of my listeners are on YouTube, but a lot of people oh, actually, cool. li- but, but it's still just a fraction. But a lot of people, and I've advertised there just to experiment. You get a group like to get a grant, and like you're getting a thousand dollars, and you want to promote ten episodes. You'd be shocked at the sort of the listens that you might get. It might actually be a more targeted way than the radio station. It's this, you know what? I'm gonna, and a thousand will really get you some exposure on YouTube. It's actually that's That's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I feel like I keep learning about that and then I keep forgetting it. But really, it is a, a lot of people listen to their podcasts on YouTube. Yeah, I, I I was just playing around and my again my YouTube listening is just almost nothing, but you you put it everywhere, right? That's how a podcaster yeah. works. And so I did a little bit of advertising. I think it was fifty bucks or something like that, and you know, and it, the the numbers jumped a few thousand to from what wow. was right. And so that's I, great. You really should, if that's something you're serious about, is maybe there's a foundation that wants to get the message out, and you're like, all right, for some small grants, we can kind of do some targeting of of our podcast. So anyway, something yeah. Like, Hey, if Prager University can do it. (laughs) Oh, shit. Prager. Okay, we really went off on a tangent on podcasting, but um, no, but I love talking podcasting with other podcasters, but um, I'm sure listeners too want to hear more. And I want to pivot right back to Drilled. And there's there's too much content to sort of like, let's go over all these things. But, you know, some things that you highlighted for me that I dug into is season three, and that was looking at how the fossil fuel industry created the modern public relation industry. And, and correct me if that that's sort of a, not a great description, but could you describe what you were doing with season three? Yeah, absolutely. So I, in sort of the aftermath of the first two seasons, which were really focused on like climate denial and disinformation and all of that, I was doing more and more research and, and just thinking through and actually talking to a couple of, of sociology researchers too about their work and how, you know, really the, the science disinformation stuff only worked because there had been this sort of groundwork laid for a century before about how great and important and necessary fossil fuels were. So I wanted to to sort of dig into that history. And there is this thing like you can kind of see throughout history that they'll the industry will sort of lean on one lever or the other, depending on what's happening in the policy realm. <laughs> you know, like if it's if it looks like there is about to be regulation passed depending on sort of the the way that the cultures is at any given time, they'll kind of push the idea of the industry as being really critical and really innovative and part of the solution and whatever, or they'll lean on the disinformation side. So I, I felt like it was important for people to understand both sides. And now, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing that now because almost immediately when Biden was elected, Although I know there's, there's still apparently some debate about that. There was, you know, instantly I was seeing like American Petroleum Institute ads around how they're part of the climate solution. So. 
I want to dig into the notion of and maybe how the climate movement, I guess, learns from it. But could you also briefly describe Herb Smurtz? Oh, Herb Smurtz, my favorite. Yes, he's kind of my favorite of these characters. So this is the other thing that I think is helpful for me in in looking at this stuff and hopefully for other people, too, is, is like sometimes it can feel really overwhelming. You know, these guys have been kind of controlling the story and shaping how people think about energy for a hundred years. What hope do we have? Right. But when you start to kind of dig into it and peel back the layers, it's, it's like a fairly small handful of specific people. you know. And one of those people was Herb Schmertz, who was the VP of public affairs for mobile oil for, you know, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And he really created a lot of the strategies that we still see in use today. So he worked with the New York Times to create the advertorial. He kind of created sponsored content across the board. I mean, he worked with PBS to have mobile sponsor Masterpiece Theater and used that to kind of bolster public opinion of mobile as as sort of the thinking man's oil. He also was quite good at kind of weaponizing ideas of objectivity against journalists. So he talked about this later in life in an interview where he would just sort of go after any journalist that that printed a story that was critical of mobile and accused them of being biased for not including mobile's opinion. And, you know, he's like, yeah, it was a tactic to get them to, to cover our side of things. And, and it worked, you know, I think it convinced, I don't know, it convinced a lot of people that they needed to have, you know, an oil executives take on environmental regulation or else their story was somehow biased against the industry. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff, you know, it seems maybe it seems small, but you just sort of see it in like most news coverage still today of the climate issue. So when he was doing all this, I guess the deck, I want to say the 50s, 60s and 70s, is that was that did I get that right? He started in the 60s and then he went through the 80s. OK, so, yeah. And I'm trying to describe what he did. And so the media behaved a certain way. And so he, Herb, decided that he wanted it to behave a different way. You know, he was bending it to his will is how, as I was listening, I'm just like, gosh, he just didn't like how they behaved. And so he wanted to change it. And I guess one of the questions I have for you is, as he was doing this, and it it sounds bad, right? It it sounds, you know, he's attacking the journalists and such. But then it it occurred to me, it's like, is anything he's doing illegal or was it unethical? I mean, what was he? No, honestly, I think he was he was smart and good at his job. (laughs) And and I kind of think that, um, you know, this is where I feel like really the media needs to start taking a, a closer look at itself and its own role in all of this stuff, because, yes, it's very easy to say, oh, these PR firms or these, you know, internal PR guys were doing all this stuff, but it shouldn't have been that effective. You know, like, so what if some guy at Mobile Oil calls and yells at you? <laughs> you know, that should not make you change your approach to a story. And I I don't know. I mean, that to me was a really interesting thing that I didn't even necessarily start out with in that season was just how this relationship between companies and journalists has kind of swung back and forth over the years. So like, you know, in the very early days of kind of the muckrakers and things, they had quite an antagonistic relationship with companies and and with like people in power in general it was like kind of considered to be a journalist job to you know hold powerful people to account and then you sort of start to see well you see the PR industry you know gain in prominence and and you start to see kind of this idea of, of access journalism emerging more and more you know where people are sort of trading you know antagonism for for access. So, you know, they can get into the factory and see how things are made and, and stuff like that. And that, again, was very intentional. I mean, a guy who worked for Standard Oil created the press release. And for the first couple of years, newspapers were so surprised that companies were sharing information with them willingly that they just printed them. <laughs> Great. Well, um, 
yeah. To me, what he was doing, obviously, you know, there's a spectrum of what's ethical behavior. And like you said, he was just doing his job really well. And I think one of the outcomes, and he wasn't the only one responsible for this, but it was a long-term approach to creating a persona around a corporation. Like you've created yeah. an identity, and now all of a sudden they're just not this big, faceless, awful thing. And it occurred to me is that we still haven't created a persona for the climate, have we? No, I mean, that's a very good point. And Herb Schmertz at the time, because he was in public affairs, which kind of crossed over into lobbying and law and PR, he was very active in pushing the um, the Buckley v. Vallejo case, too, which was kind of the precursor to Citizens United to literally give companies, you know, the rights of people. That was that really like opened the floodgates for kind of corporate free speech. So he he wasn't just tackling it from like from the perspective of, you know, calling up editors and getting mad at them or, you know, yelling at journalists or whatever. He also was trying to change the entire structure of media. And a big part of it also, yeah, was this whole corporate personhood thing and creating a personality and therefore kind of a sense in the public that, you know, mobile was a certain type of person and therefore should be given a certain amount of leeway. Well, like, or all people should be treated fairly, right? Like if you've you've humanized them, then there's this sense of like fairness and it was a genius approach, but it it, it immediately occurred to me, we haven't done that with the climate. That's very true. In fact, we kept human beings out of the climate conversation for a very long time. And I'm not sure why it's very, it's an interesting question. And, and I guess a follow up to that is, you know, we've both been doing climate communication for a while and there's and I think of Smurts and, you know, plugging along, doing what he's doing very effectively. Mm-hmm. But there's this notion and I've worked for nonprofits and I've worked for, you know, the National Park Service. And there's I think people who are in the climate space and the climate movement, there's this sort of embedded idea of what we're doing is kind of noble. Look, we're trying to save the planet. And right. along with that nobility, I think kind of instills a, a, you know, a naiveness about how things get done and it's just baked into the system. And I think it affects our ability to actually communicate more effectively. And I, I, yeah. and it leads me to the, I guess, point is like, well, am I proposing we communicate unethically or more? I guess playing for keeps and you know, yeah. I, I don't have the solution, but I, I look at smirts and think, gosh, look how effective he was. And I'm tired of the climate movement just thinking good things will happen because we're doing something noble here. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I interviewed Dan Ariely, the guy who wrote predictably irrational a while ago, like in, oh, probably 15 years ago or something now and about specifically environmental issues and and the approach of the environmental movement to trying to get people to change their ideas or behavior, things like that. And he, he was like, you know, telling me this story about how he had consulted for a nonprofit and that he was trying to basically kind of teach them how to use the same tactics that Coca-Cola had used and that they, you know, acted like there was something wrong with using those tactics, you know, and, and, and he was kind of like, if the sort of the good guys are intentionally avoiding using what we know to be the most effective tactics, that's not good. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I do still I still run across that today, you know, people feeling like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure what they think they're going to accomplish by being like the more noble you know, side of the the communications field. Because, yeah, I mean, Herb Schmertz was a character, too. (laughs) Like, he was, he was very, uh, he got very involved in all these things. Like, when he was doing stuff with PBS, I mean, he was picking shows, he was involved in casting, he was looking at scripts. And when he left Mobile, Initially, his plan was to start a film production company because he was like, I mean, it was kind of funny actually reading this in his memoirs that like, I think he, he really thought that he had, that he wasn't just the money guy, right? Like that he was really a part of the creative team. And it was like, almost as soon as he was not connected to mobile's money, that was the end of his film career, (laughs) you know, but, um, 
But anyway, yeah, I just I don't understand why what it's going to take for climate folks, especially, you know, if if people genuinely feel like this is an emergency and time is running out, you got to use whatever tools are there. Yeah. And I'm not even I, I totally agree. Like, so the, the the rhetoric that we hear is like, you know, we have five years, we have 10 years until it's it's too late. And if it's truly that case, then you think we would have seen some behaviors on people acting. I, and I don't mean like going tying yourself to a pipeline, which, you know, I'm not necessarily discouraging either. It's just yeah. when it comes to the rhetoric and the tactics that we use, we need our own herb smirts. And I yes. don't some people would not agree with that. But if the stakes are really that high, why haven't we seen more of this? And I like to think of my podcast. I take the high road 99% of the time, and maybe I'm part of that problem too, but I'd love to see someone with his tactics come along. Yes, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I often think thought about that when I was researching this season. I was like, man, it'd be great to, to have, you know, to be able to read about the like the environmental version of this person. And, you know, we've had some, like, I think Ida Tarbell and Rachel Carson and lots of like these people who have, who have helped to sort of shine a light on, on what the industry is doing. But we, I don't know. I haven't, I don't know that there's a green version of, of Herb Schmertz that I've come across. We need it. Right. And, you know, the, and I look at just even the presidential race, it's just Republicans versus Democrats. And, you know, Democrats can play somewhat dirty, but there's one side that will literally say anything and Democrats aren't willing to go there quite yet. So even though they might use hyperbole or whatever, it's just like it's asymmetrical warfare. One side will say anything and the other will be like, well, they feel bound by some sense of, I just can't say he's going to go murder your children. Whereas the other side might say that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's very, um, I know whenever I see, a a, like a, a sort of right wing conspiracy theory about the Democrats, like I think someone, I I saw something about, you know, Fox news was saying that like COVID was a hoax created by the Democrats. And I'm, I'm like, honestly, I wish the Democrats were capable of that level of craven politicking. (laughs) (laughs) They are not. All right. Well, I encourage my listeners to go check out, you know, all the seasons, of course. But this, I mean, just really fascinating on how an industry, you know, just decided to <laughs> change the rules of the game. And we have much to learn through that process. Yeah. So we're doing another major pivot here. And you wrote an essay in a new book. And the book is All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And so it's a book that's it has a bunch of different essays, and you wrote one of the essays for it. Could you give a little bit more background on the book? Yes, it is all women, I believe. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it was organized by Dr. Ayanna Johnson and Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, and they wanted to pull together a book of essays and poems from women doing various things in the climate space. So there's a really wide range of folks in there. There's, you know, like a NASA scientist and a poet and and then me. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's great. I think they did a really good job of, of curating this collection and we, you know, we've gotten good, good feedback on it. And it's just a, it's a good mix of, of things um, kind of all over the map on climate. I haven't read the whole book, but I, I've read your essay that was shared with me. And, you know, it was weird. I read it first before we had our first phone call. And you you seem like a very cheerful person. And I hope that doesn't come off condescending in any way. But just you did. It was very positive. But the essay to me, very dire, very there was a melancholy kind of atmosphere to it. And just yeah. maybe you could elaborate some of the things that you talked about. Yeah, well, I talked about uh, what it feels like to be raising kids right now. And, you know, it. I think, I don't know, I, I feel like we're, this kind of generation of parents is the first to really feel like we might not be able to guarantee our kids a better future. <laughs> you know? and, and I also, I think I, I wrote about this weird tension between sort of the day-to-day kind of present tasks of, of parenting and the kind of constant future track you have in your mind, not just about, you know, what they will do as individuals, but now, you know, what the world will be like in 15, 20 years. So I know 
there's like one part where I talk about my oldest kid has been really obsessed with wanting to know everything there is to know about college and he's eight and I'm, (laughs) I do. I like, I sometimes catch myself being like, is college going to still be a thing for him? I don't know. Like, is he, is college even a good play for kids growing up today? Like maybe he should learn how to farm. (laughs) I, yeah, I don't know. I guess it is, it is kind of depressing, but it's a, it's a fear I have. You know, I've heard this talked about a bit, and I don't know if you listened to the episode. I, I listened to most of it, but I think you're friends with uh, Marianne Hitt in the No Place Like Home podcast, and they had a yeah. whole episode of Should You Have Children or some headline yes. like that. Yeah. And to me, I, I always kind of thought most people that were questioning having children is more about do I want them to come and sort of use resources, and are they going to contribute to the problem? Do I have a responsibility? Mm-hmm. And then a little bit less of – oh, do I want children because I'm bringing them into a potential hellscape? And I wasn't quite right. sure in your essay. What what was your – I think it was more of that latter one. Is it, would, it, would that be accurate? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I – so I, um, I did a project maybe seven or so years ago now where um, myself and a group of other journalists did kind of like a – well, we crowdfunded long form climate journalism, and then we syndicated it to various national outlets. And in the course of that, we did a project on population for The Guardian. So again, this is like seven or eight years ago. And at that time, the entire conversation around should I shouldn't I have kids? And what does climate have to do with it was around resources? And you know, is it irresponsible of me, especially as a person in the West to um, have kids that will be you know, sort of resource intensive on the world and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen just in the last couple of years that really dramatically changing to people worrying about the impact on the kids they might have, you know, which is scary and kind of depressing that that is something that people are feeling like they have to consider when they're deciding whether or not to have kids. I have to say, I didn't think about any of this stuff when I had kids. I don't know why it was like just completely like a separate part of my brain. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah. And then, you know, I do talk to quite a few mothers in the climate space who have a very different approach, you know, and, and who think like, well, and, and to be clear, I don't, I'm not like a climate doomer who thinks that like my kids are headed for apocalypse. I, it's just like, it's a thing that definitely I think probably helps to drive my work in the space. And it, I think for me having my own kids kind of made me that much more aware about what kind of world we're leaving to future generations. But yeah, I don't know. I have, I had this conversation with Kate Marvel, who's a NASA scientist a few months ago. And, and she was like, I know what will happen if we don't do anything. And I know what will happen if we do do something. And my focus is really on trying to create the kind of society that I want my kids to grow up in and like trying not to focus too much on what happens if we don't achieve that, (laughs) which I think is probably a good approach. I follow her on Twitter and I just love that name. Dr. Marvel, just a great name too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, listen, my own thoughts on that, and I've touched upon it just a little bit, not nearly as thoughtful as you did in that essay. I encourage people to read the essay and it's more of just a, a practical reasons like, well, people that don't care about climate change, they are going to keep having children. And if like this climate people decide they're not having children, they're not going to grow up to vote. They're not going to grow up to learn those values. What the hell are we doing not having children? And that's not going to change. Anyway, that's more of a practical. And maybe you disagree with this because you wrote an essay. But when I first saw the No Place Like Home, the headline was just so glaring. Like I think it was, do you should we have children? And I feel beyond the arguments that they're making, which, you know, very thoughtful episode, but how people are creating an identity for the climate movement. And it's like now look at them saying don't have kids. 
And in I some know. ways, that's even more harmful than the nuance point you might try, you know, you're trying to make with it. And so, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but we, we have to worry about our identity as a movement. Totally. I actually find the, I find the whole population discussion troubling and, and especially because I've seen it now come up two or three times just in my career. And I, I don't know. I just, I feel like a, and this was actually the, the point that I made in this guardian story a, a while back was that, you know, every, every person's reproductive choices ha- like entail a whole constellation of factors. And, and I also just think that you start to get into the sort of individual choice versus systemic change thing. But then on top of that, there's this very dark history of eugenics in that conversation, you know, of like deciding who should and shouldn't be having children. And uh, I don't know. I just, I, I totally understand why it might impact someone's decision around having kids. But I, I hope that as a movement, we will not get into the sort of lecturing you shouldn't have kids if you if you care about the climate kind of stance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And listen <laughs> to my listeners. This is a minefield for me being, you know, the, the male. I, I'm not suggesting you have kids based on what you want. Any circumstances. I'm just talking more right. about the conversation that's going on out there. Yeah, like the framing of it. I know. And then I I, like there's also this thing, too, where I have seen personally a number of women who actually just don't want kids who have kind of wrapped that decision up in some kind of like noble crusade for climate that I don't find helpful at all. (laughs) You know, I'm like, first of all, it's completely okay as a woman to decide you don't have kids just because you don't want kids for a variety of reasons. And secondly, I don't think it's helpful to paint the choice not to have children as like a noble self-sacrifice on on behalf of the climate. I just feel like that's a really dangerous territory to get into. So you host another podcast, and I think these other issues come up. It's called Hot Take, and it's with you with Mary Ann and Mary Anais Hagler. Do I did I get that right? Mary Anais, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you a little, I think, bit more flexibility. And you are, I think, covering more about climate communication, the climate movement. But could you give a little background on that podcast? Yeah, yeah. It actually started out as sort of a media criticism podcast about climate coverage, which felt so niche to me when Mary and I were first talking about it. But there's actually so much to discuss because the way that we talk about this issue intersects with so many different things. Like we were just talking about reproductive choice and gender, right? There's also race and class and all kinds of immigration issues and food and just all kinds of things. So for example, You know, we had on a guy, David Tamarkin, who's the editor of the website Eater, um, a few episodes ago and got into this really interesting conversation about how the culture of food media has really not accounted for climate. So he was talking about this kind of overlap of masculinity and meat eating, for example, that happens in like the foodie space or the emphasis on ingredients that can only be sourced from really far away. Things like that, where it's like like the food media space has sort of always been very aspirational and not really tied to reality. But he feels like we're getting to a place where it just it feels sort of like superficial and unethical to act as though that's possible anymore. (laughs) You know? So anyway, just it's it's um it takes some surprising turns and we get into a lot of of conversations that we never quite expect when we start out on an episode. This podcast, America Adapts, focuses on how we're going to adapt to climate change. And I get into climate communications like this episode is around that. and I love having those conversations. And so your your own experiences with your, your podcast, how often is adaptation coming up? Is it an area that's kind of emerging for you? Or do you feel like you've always covered it? Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I feel like it's kind of ebbed. It's kind of like come and gone over the years. So I covered adaptation a lot, you know, maybe 15 years ago. And then I feel like I 
sort of lost track of it and then started covering it again more recently. And there is something that I've noticed emerging in the way that people talk about adaptation that I think is worth paying attention to. It's sort of a resurgence of this. Like I, I know you've seen this for years, the whole weird like adaptation versus mitigation thing, right. <laughs> which is so ridiculous because of course, like we need to do all of the things all at the same time. But there's, there's something about that now too, where I'm seeing even, I'm seeing like a, a lot of, of progressives even look at adaptation as something that like, oh, that's something that only like doomers who've given up on mitigation <laughs> are going to be into it. I'm like, oh no, this again. I mean, similar to the whole reproduction conversation, I feel like these things sort of cycle in and out of, of the media. And sort of like the public conversation about these things. And, and we're having another one of these moments where these things are being presented as in, as though they're in conflict with each other. And they're just not. And then, you know, on the flip side, too, I do see some people, it, you know, it's weird. It kind of tends to be gendered just in my personal experience of this, where it's like there's a certain type of um, tech guy who is like all about adaptation only. And then like a certain type of environmental activist woman who's like, all technology is bad forever, boo, you know, and I'm just like, ugh, this is not this is this is not going to be helpful. So yeah, you know, it comes up on occasion, but I make a point in my podcast to keep bringing it's like, all right, we need you guys on the mitigation side to do your thing, or we're not going to be able to adapt to it. But meanwhile, we need to adapt to what's happening and what's coming quickly and i find at least when it comes to the adaptation side especially i have you know practitioners i have academics it's actually i think the happy side of the climate change conversation because a lot even when i hear from listeners they're saying oh i like the fact that people are doing something now proactively and Mm -hmm. rarely does a guest ever get sort of dooming oh well there's no way it just it doesn't come up and i so i feel i'm actually kind of lucky i'm more on the positive space but i make the point to say we need you to do mitigation <laughs> in no ways adaptation taking away. It's a different skill set. Please keep what you're doing over there. And yeah. some people just are trying to pick a fight. You know, if you're not like on their camp, they just, like you said, they're just looking to pick a fight. Yeah, I think so too. And I do think one thing that I am starting to see more of that I think is really good to see is people thinking about kind of the stuff that needs to happen around more, you know, technical or physical adaptation to make it work, you know, so for example, like the the managed retreat conversation, right? I think there was a while there where people were just so freaked out by that term, that they didn't even want to talk about it, you know, and I'm, I am starting to see people realize, okay, you know, if we're going to build different systems, or rethink how we're building cities or uh, rethink how we're moving people around any of these things like we're going to have to also address sort of social structures and all of these kind of soft things that go along with people changing how they live. Yeah. And and I don't want to give the impression that there's pen- plenty of controversial things going on with adaptation. And so managed retreat, like I, I'm like, Miami, you need to move <laughs> like the whole city totally. need to move. Yeah. And then, I, and we're climate justice, environmental justice issues are coming up a lot more. And it's just the, Tons, you know, who, yeah. who gets the resources to do what they're doing. And so there's lots of controversy in adaptation actions. Yeah. And that's, that's emerging big time. Managed retreat. I, I'm actually having another conversation about that this week. And it's just, it's a fascinating subject. It's so interesting. And I mean, that it, it intersects with the justice question so much, too, because, yeah, like who's deciding who's moving where and, you know, who's paying for that and who's I don't know. It's just there's a lot. There's a lot to figure out. Yeah, we are rewiring or restructuring a society in slow motion, but it's going to happen faster. And these are all just conversations that need to happen. So, yeah. OK, so with Hot Take, I don't know if you've covered this much. But when it comes to the media and climate change, I think we can we can say they failed us in many ways. But it's, I think you could make an argument they're getting a little bit better. And I want to talk about wildfires briefly on as yeah. an example. And so California, the most recent wildfires, and then Australia about a year and a half ago, I felt, and I might still be in my bubble, 
But the media, even in that country and in this country covering that country, connected it to climate change pretty well. And I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I thought so, too. I think in general, you're seeing you're just I'm just seeing less and less of of the sort of hesitancy that we used to see even, you know, three to five years ago around connecting things like, you know, this year's hurricane season or the giga fire in California or the brush fires in Australia to climate change and also an unwillingness to take seriously the people that want to have these debates about, you know, how, well, technically it's more about uh, forest management or whatever, you know, which that was something that was, I mean, that was maybe something that I felt like the media didn't do a great job of. And I think will be helped by more outlets just getting sharper on, on climate stuff in general. But this, I, this idea that we need to find one single driver for everything is so, it's just such a problem. Um, it opens, it opens the floodgates for all kinds of just kind of false narratives. And, you know, I went on, on the media around the California fires because there was this whole disinformation campaign initially about how you know, protesters were starting the fires and then that sort of pivoted into there was there was at one point a campaign around blaming the Sierra Club for the fires because the Sierra Club had stopped people from logging. And like that was the reason that, you know, forest management had gone wrong. It's just like, okay, we need people to be able to understand that these issues are layered and complicated and that climate change is a factor that interacts with other factors, you know? So, yeah, but I do feel like it's improving. People are starting to get there. I want to see that headline, the county commission that allowed the development in this sort of wildfire zone. That should be the story, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, there's, it's like building approaches, permitting forest management, you know, even like water management. That's another thing where I'm just like, well, you know, we have a dam near here. This, there's this whole county that I, I think is becoming less and less habitable too, because it basically floods every winter and burns down every summer. It's just not, <laughs> it's not good. But, um, but part of it is like, like the dam was built for a precipitation pattern that no longer exists. <laughs> you know, so we need to like, okay, we know that now. What are we going to do about it? We're just going to let it overflow and flood every year. That seems silly. Once again, I think the fires just demonstrate how hard it is to, I guess, make climate change relevant to people because you think about wildfires that if people are impacted directly, they're right next in the fire zone. They don't care necessarily that climate change is making this worse. They want immediate help. But then people that aren't impacted by those fires and they're far away, they're like, oh, that looks troubling. I'm glad I'm not living there. And again, the climate change is not raised to that level of urgency. And, oh, it's such a hole to start in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, we had an interesting conversation about that on on Hot Take recently about um, there was a new paper that came out maybe two months ago about whether or not natural disasters increase or like drive policy, you know, like increase politicians willingness to pass climate policy. And the answer that that paper gave was no, based on the fact that, you know, Hurricane Sandy hadn't really done anything, all of these things. And they sort of came to the conclusion that the only thing that really eventually drives policy is like grassroots organizing and people just sort of like pushing the ball down the road year after year. Um, But we were talking to Justin Warland, who's the environmental reporter for Time magazine, and he was talking about how, you know, yes, okay, maybe you can't point to some catastrophic disaster and the policy that it generated. But, you know, he gave the example of living in DC. He's like, you know, we have this flash flood thing happening all the time now. And like, it, it almost doesn't even make the national news because it's not like that big of a deal, but it's this sort of like constant hum where you're like, this is not normal. This is not how we were living even five or six years ago that, you know, maybe does kind of make people think a bit more. I know I hear more people in California actually talk about the lingering smoke than 
the urgent danger from wildfire. Oh, interesting. Well, and you, I'm not sure. Have people reached out to you? You just said natural disaster, and I oh yeah, get sorry. My, extreme weather. Right, yes. <laughs> I, I get my hand slapped quite a bit on that one, and I and I agree with what they're trying to say there. But uh, yes. it's so easy just to say it in the media. That's I guess one area that they're failing big time because I see natural disaster all the time still. Yes, yes, totally, totally. Yeah, I do, and that I don't know that kind of stuff is. I do think it's important to encourage those kinds of shifts in language to help people kind of grasp, you know, what's happening. But I forget too sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a colleague at the World Wildlife Fund. She does disasters at Anita, and she's always there. It's just like, Doug, you did it again. So Anita, if, if you're listening, I'm bringing it up with Amy. All right. So um, just checking in. I I do want to kind of wrap it up soon. Even I, yeah. I, there's a whole section that I'm not going to even get to. Damn it. But but there's a couple points I want to get. So that uh, sure. just a couple more questions, and then uh, this has been fabulous though. So. We just had a big election, and apparently we don't have closure on that, but we're just going to go ahead and say we have a Biden administration coming in. What will that mean for Drilled and I guess all your climate podcasts? I mean, I think it will mean more of the same to me. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, these, like, the fossil fuel industry is not going away anytime soon. It remains to be seen whether the Senate will be. Uh, Republican or Democrat controlled and, and that will definitely have an impact on what sorts of policies get passed. And then, you know, I think I'm under no illusion that the Democrats don't also need to be held accountable. So, you know, I kind of, I mean, we already, we ran a story on the drilled website. Oh, maybe like a month ago looking at Moniz, who is rumored to be Biden's pick for Department of Energy head and the various issues attendant to him. So, yeah, I mean, I think there will be things to cover for for quite a while. And, you know, on Hot Take, we're kind of like following the story no matter where it goes. So, yeah, I I think the market for climate podcasts will remain hot to make a terrible pun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if the funding gets a bit better, of course, the topic will keep us busy for hundreds of years. So that (laughs) That will help. help. Yeah. Okay. And so last question, and I asked this of all my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast that I can talk to, who would it be? Hmm. Have you had Kate Marvel on yet? No, I have not. Oh, she would be great. Yes. Highly recommend her. What about Leah Stokes? No, I have not either. She's, they just started their shoot. No, it's Wilkinson and Leah Stokes that have just started their own podcast, right? That's right. A matter of degrees. Yeah. yeah. Leah's, Leah's, I think, very good on, on adaptation stuff and on especially talking about, um, some of the, the weird, unnecessary debates that crop up. You know, that's a good one. And I, I asked this question with the last time Michael Mann, Dr. Michael Mann was on and I, I asked and he said, Leah Stokes. So oh, <laughs> I need to, fo- I need to follow up on that. She's great. I, if you need her info, I'm happy to send it to you. She's, and also, um, she like has her all her own equipment and is very good at recording right. herself great. too. So that's also good. good, good. <laughs> she does enough media that she's figured it out. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And you know, just, I guess why is there any, anyone who's been like a, I guess a character in any of your episodes you think might actually be a good follow-up to. Ooh. Hmm. You've talked to crabbers. You've talked to all sorts of folks. You know, the crabbers would be really good. And in, in particular, there was one woman that I talked to in our second season who I found fascinating because she um, is a named plaintiff in a lawsuit against the oil companies surrounding sort of their efforts to just kind of keep information about climate change out of the public sphere and or spin it in certain ways. But she still doesn't actually think that humans are impacting the climate. And I just found that really, really interesting because her whole motivation was to join the suit was that she was shown, you know, primary documents where various oil companies had gotten really, it was mostly they had gotten patents for adapting their uh, coastal refineries and offshore platforms to sea level rise. And 
it was like right at the same time, you know, that they were kind of ramping up efforts to tell everybody else that the jury was really still out on climate change and whether it was even happening. And she just felt like that was really unfair. And I think that, um, that is a, that is like a, a whole perspective that I think we could, we could stand to dig into a bit more. Yeah. And I was listening to those and just, you know, that to me, that's, I would love to get you back on the podcast and some other topics and like developing narratives around people in the climate movement. And I think the crabbers, you developed the narrative and I have certain problems with narratives that are developed and and, and so the years, but I'm just saying that could be very interesting because. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Cause that's, that's the trick, right? Is like, you know, I don't know if you're developing any kind of narrative, you're inherently influencing or trying to influence or frame the story in a way. So yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's super interesting. Well, Amy, this has been better than I thought it'd be. This, the, it, I, I, I love this conversation. And um, like I said, I'd love to have future conversations with you, maybe check-ins once in a while where we can kind of go over some issues. But thanks for what you do. You know, you're a leader in the field. You're, you're an inspiration to a lot of us climate podcasters. And thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Amy for coming on the show. What a treat to host Amy. She is a legend in climate podcast circles, and I was geeking out just chatting about climate podcasting. She's amazing at what she does and has elevated environmental journalism to an art form. Definitely check out her podcast network at Critical Frequency. She covers a lot of ground. I'm fascinated by the climate change movement creating a new persona, one that is likely to capture the public's imagination and then creating real desire to seek change. We are definitely not there yet, but people like Amy are getting very creative in setting new narratives for this sector. Also, this is my first episode since the election, the presidential election. We don't endorse candidates here at America Adapts, but I'm obviously very happy with the election of Joe Biden. America needs to reboot how we approach climate change, and Biden was the only option in that respect. It'll be interesting to see who he brings into the administration and how we can quickly get back into the Paris Climate Agreement. Definitely great news on the climate front. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Adapts, think about using a podcast. It doesn't have to be a webinar. It doesn't have to be a boring old white paper. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I normally connect with folks at conferences and meetings, but that has been shut down for the last year. So definitely reach out to me directly if you have some ideas for this type of episode. That's how I keep the lights running. So maybe your organization wants to highlight the great work you're doing email me at americaadapts at gmail.com. So most of you have heard me talk about the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios, which is completely independent from the podcast. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation channel. I'm interviewing climate adaptation experts, clean energy entrepreneurs, and academics from around the world. It is a whole channel dedicated to climate change. And the team at Simpatico has me booked up through the spring, interviewing some of the most interesting people in this space. Definitely sign up to check out the platform. And yes, it's free. A link is in the show notes or just go to Simpatico.com. And that's with a C, C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O. There's a huge archive of interviews on every topic imaginable. Definitely go check it out. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just sign up. I'll prove you right away. We have some interesting conversations or people post their own work or other podcasts there, definitely check it out. On that note, I love hearing from you. Take the time to email me just to say who you are. And if you're in the field, let me know what you do. It's very valuable to me to know who my listeners are and it helps drive the content I create. Do it. I know you want to. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email and the website is americaadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.